Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. I live music. The morning, noon, the whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I do. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special, the night we get someone in to pick the music. And I'm delighted that tonight my guest is uh, Jessica Trainer, who I know sort of, I call Jessica a poet, but there's more to it because she's a writer, she's a, a dramaturg, and she's a creative writing teacher and various other things. So, uh, Jessica, will poet do for tonight? I think poet is a good hat to wear tonight. It is. It's, it's yeah. a hat to wear with pride, I think, if you can afford to. Absolutely. Well, that's that's another that's another story. <laughs> if, if you if you have earned the hat, so uh, uh, Jessica, um, we get into all this obviously later. I, I, what a dramaturg is, and all. Is that, have I even pronounced that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. Hard G. Yes. Um, so Jessica, Dublin credentials in your case. You're Tala. Um, born born in Tala. Yes. Yeah. And then moved around various different places, north, south, wherever. Have have defected from one side of the river to the other a number of times. But I'm I'm now a proud North Sider. Right. Yeah. The North Sider thing has stuck. I think. And what was uh, we've had, we've had a few guests on the program before who grew up in Tala, and I think you might be the youngest of them. So maybe your experience isn't the same. But they talk about it being like uh, partially the countryside, really. Yeah, I think I probably was too young to have really gotten out into it too much. And I think most of my kind of um, my youthful experiences wandering around um, in the way that you could still in the 80s and 90s would have been much more kind of urban than that. You know, we we moved in closer to the city. We went from Tala to Rathgar, um, which was a shock for all the neighbours in Rathgar for a little while. We were we were um, a curiosity. And uh, especially because my dad was from Finglas as well. uh, And my mum was from Walter. Town, so there were kind of, you know, yeah. we were really um, uh, compounding the circumstances of having come down from Tala. So we, we lived in, in a house in Rathgar that my parents would have bought. Um, it was basically derelict and we had to live in one room of it for the first while and there were holes in the roof, there were infestations, there were, you know, to the extent that when, when we moved into the house, um, it had been empty for about six months, but the previous tenants' food and meals were still on the table. Oh, that's a bonus. Really, yeah, <laughs> but it was pretty gothic stuff, you know, it really was. So, um, At what age were you then, Jessica? I would have been about three, I think, at that oh, stage. Right, okay. So, yeah, that so was, you're really a Rathgar I, I am, yeah, yeah. I can't I can't lay claim to being, you know, a representative of Tala, um, but no more can I really lay claim to being a representative of Rathgar, because we stayed there for for a while and then my parents separated and moved to different sides of the city. My dad went right. back to his uh, native north side and lived right beside Croke Park. Um, and when I, me and my partner bought our, bought our first house about 10 years ago now, we moved just around the other side of Croke Park. So that would have had that whole area, the kind of the Joneses Road area, yeah. um, you know, and all of its, uh, all of the hinterland, all of the very Joycean hinterland around there, right yeah. the way into Mountjoy Square, uh, would be kind of a, a spiritual home as well still, 
even though we've moved from Ballybock, where we are, were a little bit further out to Artane. Now. now, I've been looking at your list of some great choices on here, all sorts. PJ Harvey's coming up, Smashing Pumpkins and all kinds of things. But your first choice I see is Vivaldi, Four Seasons. Would you, did you hear that on the radio, record player, where? We had a little tape recorder, a little cassette player. Um, you know, and it's again that the, the technology has become so obsolete now that I don't even know what it was called. It was basically you stuck the tape in and you, you press play. Um, but my mum was very keen when I was growing up for me to experience things like classical music and uh, and and reading and writing and art. And it was all really important to her. And she had a kind of a programme, you know, yeah. and the Vivaldi was part of the programme. We had a couple of tapes. And did she um, know anything about it herself? Oh, she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, she would have been. Uh, both of my parents would have been really, really keen uh, in terms of arts, literature, that kind of thing, despite the fact that they both might not have become come from backgrounds where that was traditionally a, a huge part of, of, yeah. of life. You know, my dad was a keen writer. Uh, my mum uh, went back to become an actor um, and they were really keen for me to experience the arts. Um, and this Vivaldi tape was, was part of it. It was the Four Seasons and uh, my mum used to stick it on to help me get to sleep at night. First choice of my guest tonight, Jessica Trainer, uh, is from Vivaldi's uh, The Four Seasons. That's the the first movement and uh, performed there by Sarah Chang with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Um, Jessica, we're, we're in Tala, then we were in Tarathgar, and uh, your parents were people with an artistic background, and your, it was your mother in particular who was encouraging you to uh, get involved in the good things in life. Were you, were you a good student? I, I was, yeah, yeah. I loved school. Um, mm. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, probably up until secondary school level where life became more complicated as life becomes more complicated yeah. for everybody. And school becomes a little bit boring, doesn't it? it? Yeah, it becomes Can a little do. bit boring. But then there were also things like I was great at languages and I was great at English and history. Um, whereas, you know, when I was about, up until about 12, I was great at maths. But then when we went on from just memorising 12 times tables and stuff mm. like that into the kind of more difficult conceptual stuff. I struggled with that. Mm. And I think that, you know, I, 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 I didn't know how to be bad at something in school. So that mm. was a challenge, you know. And I think, you know, in, in, in the adult world and in the work world, we can all compartmentalise. We yeah. can all decide, OK, this is the week to focus on this and this is the week to focus on, you know, but you don't have that ability in yeah. school, you know, you're kind of running from one thing to another um, and it is really difficult. And yes, yeah, then things like kind of especially hormones and teenage dynamics and especially for, for me, I was in an all girls school yeah. and the dynamic of all girls schools. I mean, all school dynamics are challenging, but I found that one particularly challenging. So what would you say about an all, I, mean, I went to an all boys school and I have very little to recommend that experience of an all boys school. But what about an all girls school? Is, 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 is it a, is it a, in your view? Good idea, bad idea. Oh, you know, it's so hard to know. You know, they do say that girls do better in all girls schools mm -hmm. and boys do better in mixed schools. Um, and I, you know, I suppose it depends on what you what you want or what you need from the school experience. You know, I think that I was very convinced that academia and getting your high points was the be all and end all. Um, whereas now look, I look back and think 
you know, you did an arts degree, Jess. <laughs> You know, they are what you make of them. And it was lovely to go to Trinity. Um, but I probably would have been just fine if I'd gone to UCD or if I'd gone to Maynooth or if I'd gone to DC or wherever. Do you know what I mean? And what about if you hadn't gone anywhere? Have you thought about that? Oh, that wouldn't have worked for me, I don't think. No. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I I think I needed it. I think I needed the time. And actually, it's funny. I think sometimes people can think that a, that a degree um, at that time in your life is something that sets you off on a route that you can't escape from. No, no. But I think in today's world, the notion of not having that grounding, you know, first of all, OK, it's a bit of hard work for a couple of years, but it means that you're not having to pay, you know, you're not having to work to pay a mortgage. You're not having to work to support a family. And it's a um, bit of a buffer between leaving school and and, ca- and, and growing up. You yeah, know? I, th- I think so. And I think if if it were clearer or I think if students were helped a little bit more from the transition from rote learning, which I was really good at, to this is your idea and your take on things and here are the ways that you structure your arguments I think, you know, that's a really difficult transition for people. And I, I didn't get it, you know. I mean, thankfully, Trinity was a four year degree. So I was allowed to be really bad in the first year because mm. it, it just took me a while to make that transition from one way of thinking to another. Um, and that's a kind of a seismic shift. It, and, and I don't know how you tell people how to do it. It's like saying, go on and ride that bike there without your stabilizers. You know, you can't really tell somebody how to do that. So, yeah, I fell over a lot <laughs> in the first year. <laughs> your next choice is uh, Leonard Cohen, I see, who by mm. fire. I was going to suggest maybe that was in your university years but that was in your house was it? Yeah that was actually this is this is memories of childhood holidays in Wexford strangely enough um, and my parents had all these vinyls that they had recorded onto tapes um, and uh, we used to listen to to this and lots of other songs Neil Young, Al Stewart um, lots of other kind of I suppose folk tinged yeah. music of the time and then there was also like Carly Simon and stuff like that too um, and Carol King but uh, I just the mystery of this song has just stayed with me um, I think it's fabulously poetic by fire from uh, Leonard Cohen. Jessica Trainer is with me in studio tonight picking all the tracks. Jessica is a, a writer, poet, a dramaturg, a teacher and all the rest. We got a bit lost there talking about uh, the education system that, uh, that you went through. But when you got to Trinity, what were you studying for a start? I was studying English literature with history. Right. And was that a pleasure? Um, it was, yeah. It was a pleasure. I mean, again, like all of these things, I'd love to go back and do it again now. Yeah. You know, knowing what I know, <laughs> I know. Um, and, and being and a much more chilled out person and happier in my own skin. I Students think should be, be told that on day one. Yeah. Just give this everything because when you're older, you really will exactly. want to do it again. The luxury yeah. of those couple of years. Yeah. yeah. And the idea, I mean, I mentioned this earlier about not going to college at all. Um, there's a lot of people I know, hugely successful in their fields. And I'm talking about artists, you know, musicians and one thing and another, who either didn't go or left, you know, to pursue the thing that they wanted to do. And, you know, they did really well. 
and and they're the smartest people I know and yeah. all the rest of it but they never went to college they they found their own college in a sense you know you know it's interesting I'm 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 on this panel of um, UCD creative fellows and Paul Brady is on it well there's actually. one case he in point. was he was talking about that that exact dynamic but um I think the world has changed and and not necessarily for the better uh, in a number of ways and I think that um you know arts and literature in particular has become so taken into the the, the academy mm-hmm. uh, that it's very very difficult to be successful uh, without those kind of links in some way shape or form and I think especially in the world of poetry now look it's a wonderful thing in some ways it's giving lots of young poets the chance to really focus in on kind of postgraduate studies in the area of poetry it's giving them that space that we were just both talking about valuing yeah. um, but at the same time uh, with the rowing back of free access to college education it's a narrower field of people who are having those opportunities um, now I did a master's in creative writing back in 2007 2008 in UCD um, but I still I still benefit it usually from from a grant in order to cover those fees. Um, nowadays, it's not as easy for people, um, and fewer people can afford that luxury. You know, the world has changed with the recession, and um, also these kind of registration fees are going up and up and up until they're basically resembling fees. And um, but it's just really, really hard now. To but when you say, you know, when you do a, a master's in what was it, creative, creative writing? writing? Creative writing, yeah. and there, there are various uh, very well known courses, particularly in England as well, mm. creative writing courses. Um, but at the same time, I'm talking to you and you're someone who can write and has written books. You might have written more books if you hadn't been doing that course. You know what I mean? Um, or maybe you wouldn't have. I don't, I don't think I would have because I think that when people ask me, especially when younger writers come and say, should I do a creative writing master's? And I say, well, do it if it's not going to put you under undue financial pressure because you're never going to write anything if you're worrying yeah. hugely about money. Um, and do it absolutely for the benefit that you'll get of coming across these wonderful established writers. That's mm. wonderful. It's a luxury. And for the time you will have to write. Nobody else is ever going to give you a year and say, write, write, write. Mm. But... You know, really the most beneficial thing in in those uh, courses or that comes from those courses is the creation of uh, a network of peers. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you you become best friends with your lecturer and they open all the doorways to publishing for Mm -hmm. you, you know, but even just other people who are at your stage of taking their career seriously because in the writing world, you know, it can feel you're very isolated a lot of the time as a writer. But if you can meet those peers, hang on to them, encourage each other, you will have a better chance. And my first book definitely came out of kind of clinging to those little life rafts, you know, um, when I was working away, because obviously I had to go and get a full time job. Now, I was lucky enough to get a full time job working within the arts in the Abbey Theatre. But that was very all consuming. Um, a recession hit, you know, just as I stepped out the door of college. Um, you know, there was a, we'd bought a house, there was a mortgage to pay. Um, and I think without having had that structure, I would have found it more difficult to succeed. Mm. But there are other people and you see a lot of them who just say, OK, I'm going to run away and, and walk barefoot across Asia while writing the great novel, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that really suits some people as well. Um, but I... I valued the structure that was offered to me by the whole experience. Uh, interesting to hear that. We'll come back to this. Uh, Code I, you mentioned on your list here. Yes. A version of Ave Maria. Is this your childhood? Were we still in your childhood, musically speaking? Childhood right the way up to, I suppose, my late 20s. I was in a choir called Country Oga Ohaklia. 
um, a, a wonderful choir conducted by uh, Brian O'Doul, who's now passed away um, and is now uh, conducted by Brian Dungan. Um, and the, were, you, were you a good singer? I yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a decent decent enough soprano. Yeah, yeah. So and would you have sung solo as well? Um, I very ra- rarely sang solo. I might have once or twice. Um, but we were a big enough choir. Um, you know, we did a lot of six and eight part pieces. But from the age of around 12, this was one of our staples. And again, much like the Vivaldi, it's a really complex piece of music, um, kind of modern Hungarian church music. And, you know, we really enjoyed having the opportunity just to be kind of, go sing it. I've got a version of it here from, do you know this album? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's from the, the Country Oga album, which I think came out in 97 or so. So I think just before I just would before have become time. involved. So I'm not on that on this one, but... Uh, we can pretend you are. It'll be lovely to hear it. Here it comes. Jessica Trainer with me in studio tonight. And Jessica was in that choir, Cantari uh, Oga, Althea. Well, tell me more about that choir. Um, so they were fun, uh, founded in the 1960s, I believe, by a guy called Pruncius O'Kelly, who, who did a lot of different musical arrangements of Irish traditional songs that we sung over the years. Then Brian O'Doul took them over, and Brian was a wonderful kind of part of the, the Irish music community. I believe he was the first school's uh, inspector for music in the country. Yeah. Um, and he worked with us until his death. And just, you know, we travelled all over the world. We, we sang in lots of different competitions. We we were never professional, so a lot of us, including myself, would have learned by ear uh, rather than being able to sight read. Um, but we, we kind of ne- he never let it hold hold us back. We sang really, really complex music, um, and the choir is kind of it's 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 come back to life now. Bernie Sherlock of New Dublin Voices took it over and then passed it on to her son Brian recently, and I think they've just been off uh, winning lots of different prizes around the world. And I keep threatening to go back and join again. And that version of Ave Maria by Kodai. Yeah. Um, so there was a, a wide, a wide repertoire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lots of kind of Hungarian, uh, big fan of Hungarian kind of contemporary composers of the of the mid twentieth century, like Bartok and Kodály, um, and then lots of traditional Irish stuff, and then lots of kind of sacred music, Palestrina, Vittoria, those kind of. Now I haven't composers. sung in a choir since I was in school, but um, since my voice broke, <laughs> and and um, I, a lot of people who are in choirs. You know, they'd all say the same thing. It's the most marvellous feeling of singing with other people. Oh, yeah. You I know? mean, it's that kind of, you are in the midst of all of that sound, yeah. you know. It just, it's as much of a pleasure to do as it is to listen to. But I think it's it, it really speaks to something that I love about choral music is it kind of restores your faith in humanity yeah. to a certain extent. Like, can you get this bunch of people together? Um, and especially in choirs, there's always various different, she's annoyed with him and he's annoyed, mm. you know, all these different little dynamics going her, on. Yeah. And then everybody comes together yeah. and they make this beautiful music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that we, we, there's a lot of discord in the world at the moment, you know, but there is also always the potential for, for harmony and, and just exposing yourself to that yeah. and reminding yourself of that, I think, is really important. Oh, it's very moving, even at a football match. Oh, yeah. People singing, you know. Absolutely. Mm. And you can see that in the faces of the people on the terraces, you know, how much it means to them to be able to express themselves that way. Togetherness is so important. And what age were you when you were in that choir? 
I would have started when I was about 11 or 12 okay. and sung with them up until I was probably about 28 or so. All on, right. You know, with That's a few, quite a commitment, with a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with a few gaps. I mean, I lived away for a year and a half and, you know, I've kind of, and as I said, I am still threatening to rejoin because I, I just miss it, you know. It's, it's good for the soul. And a lot of kids, of course, they associate choirs with, with school, singing songs. They're not really interested in singing, uh, although now and again you might be touched by something. Do you yeah, know, yeah. Um, but what often happens is you get distracted by other forms of music that you discover for yourself, and you know, singing about fairies and Donegal becomes less attractive. <laughs> <laughs> Shortcut through the Rosses that are many times I went Absolutely. through that. But um, you know, it's uh, were you you obviously weren't dragged away from it by all the other discoveries you were making. Yeah, no, not not at all, actually. And I think it was because of um, Brie and our conductor's choices were always very dramatic, you know. It was challenging stuff, it was difficult stuff. We we never found ourselves singing, you know, why do birds suddenly appear, you know, in three-part harmony. We, ne- we never went for that kind of twee stuff. Yeah. So even when I was like a teenage rocker, which I very much was, you know, I could, I, I could still wear the black eyeliner <laughs> while singing the choral songs. It's still... The two things still fit together. There was a similar sense of kind of drama, I think, about the music that I loved in the choir and outside of the choir. And as a teenage rocker, did you join any particular tribe? Oh, you know, it was a bit fluid in my, you know, I grew up in the in the terrible dark days of new metal. You know, mm. the, there was a terrible musical famine, I think, in the early 2000s, which is when I was a teenager. You know, grunge had just died and, and gone away uh, but we all still loved grunge and then there was this awful kind of white rap metal yeah. stuff going on you know so th- there was kind of a scrabble to find out where you where you belonged when you didn't necessarily want to wear you know a ba- red baseball cap and baggy trousers so I was kind of a goth mm. but I was a goth who was also occasionally kind of a hippie um, and a grunger and all of these different yeah. things you know there was a bit of a one size fits all and I think it was such a small community that you know nobody really stuck to the dress code too much. Well, let's go to those musical years then. That's Throwing Muses and Shimmer, the choice of Jessica Trainer, who's with me in studio tonight. And uh, so that's that's basically your teens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have spent a lot of time in my teenage years at trawling different record stores like Tower Records as was yeah. uh, Virgin while it was still there all of the HMVs, you know, looking for decent music from probably about five years beforehand because you know something seemed to have a, a, a switch flicked sometime in the late 90s and there wasn't that much great rock music anymore so if you were looking for kind of alternative stuff you were looking back a couple of years and um, I mean that song's from an album called University and I feel like musically it was my university you mm-hmm. know um, I really I love throwing muses I love Kristen Hirsch's voice I love her kind of strange surreal challenging lyrics Um I think they're an immensely overlooked band. I mean, the same, you know, they're on 4AD. They have a kind of a Pixies-esque sound. Um, and I just don't know why they they didn't make a bigger impact. I mean, I think they have a huge cult following. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think that there's a kind of a sophistication and at also, work there. I mean, people like Kristen Hirsch, there weren't, she wasn't the typical woman. 
in a band in those days. Exactly. And there's a hilarious, I mean, it's not really hilarious, but um, do you remember the word? There's there, there, they, there's a, a clip of them performing this song and Bright Yellow Gun on the word with all of the kind of psychedelic effects and the crowd going wild as if it's a Nirvana song, yeah. uh, you know, or as if maybe even it's a Pixies song. And it's just deeply inappropriate. It's the wrong reaction. And although the music rocks, it's not kind of moshing music. Yeah. There's there's something else. And it's just really interesting to look back on that and go, OK, they just heard it's a three chord trick. Let's have everybody go wild in the crowd. And it's just such an incorrect reaction to the music. And did you did you respond? I mean, we've had uh, guests on the programme before, women guests who've all said, oh, I remember the first time I saw the slits or the first time, I saw, you know, naming a bat and go, oh, right, OK, that's a different kind of woman. I don't have to be. You know, no harm to her, Kelly Minogue, or you know, who's great. But you know, you know that more, you know, the the pretty lead singer type. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I think actually, what was really interesting about kind of looking back and looking looking for those secondhand, uh, you know, grunge tapes and things like that is there was a huge explosion of women in music at that time. So I think coming along a couple of years later and seeing the example of all of these kind of what what we call riot girl bands, you know, Babes in Toyland, Bikini Kill, um, all of those kind of bands, Slater Kinney, who've been around for ages, um, we forget that they have you know is is actually it seemed quite normal um, and it seemed to be what was odd was the fact that after grunge ended all of the women disappeared mm-hmm. um, and there were no women in rock anymore apart from a few kind of notable exceptions um, so you were looking back to find out okay what, what's Kristen Hirsch doing now what's Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill doing now you know are, are Slater Kinney going to do another album so you did have to kind of look back um, to, to find those women who were you know not necessarily I mean some of them obviously there was the kind of the whole babes in toilet baby doll well tell me more about that thing. this riot, riot girl kind of thing yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was this notion of, of, of women who were, there were lots of women fronted kind of, I mean, it's called grunge, but they were basically punk bands. Um, you know, the musical style was quite similar. Um, and, uh, you know, they were really angry. Um, and I was really angry as a teenager. Now, whether I had anything to be angry about is debatable, oh, as it all, is for had, most teenagers. Yes. But it was just really cathartic, you know. It was cathartic for me to hear these women being angry about their lives and about various different things that were happening in their lives from the personal to the really political and, and I mean Bikini Kill in particular were great for that um, and I think are one of those bands who are looked back at now and taken a bit more seriously than they maybe were at the time and some of their music is really uh, prescient and again uh, Le Tigre who were the band that they were the kind of electro clash version that they had become when I was a teenager you know they, they were a huge kind of political feminist education for me when I was about 16 or 17 and they were releasing their their two albums. So it was an education for you as opposed to Oh, these people are speaking my language, if you know what I mean. You were learning from them. I was learning from my forebears, you yeah. know. And I think, you know, the, the thing is, it's so easy to see uh, social developments like feminism as something that's um, kind of happening and improving all of the time mm. when actually things get better and then they get worse again. Setbacks, and then they get slightly yeah. better and then they get worse again. It's an interesting you know? point you made. You're right, a lot of those those women who were prominent at that time, they disappeared. They completely disappeared. Yeah. And whereas, you know, the lead singers from various different male-fronted bands of that time are still afforded cult status, you know, you go yeah. on Spotify and you see that Kristen Hirsch maybe has 60,000 listeners a week as opposed to 
60 yeah. million. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. And you have somebody, you know, like Tom Waits, who's seen as this wonderful kind of musical survivor and goes through these various iterations of his, you know, his voice becoming more gravelly. Um, and he's just seen as an artist working away. Whereas I think for, for, for women artists of the same calibre, there's not quite the same reaction. No offence to Tom Waits, of whom I'm a huge fan as yeah, well. You I know? was about to interject there, but I won't. Yeah, no, no we, won't, but, we won't bash Tom. But, but, then, but, then, but then, to any to any extent, is that... And again, I know this from pe- people I know. Their audience gets older. The circumstance of their audience changes. Mm-hmm. And suddenly their audience isn't going to gigs anymore. The only yeah. person who's still living the same life is the artist. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And I'm just wondering if, 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 if Kristen Hirsch isn't been listened to as much as she should be. Where are the people who used to listen to her? Where are they? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're probably all still there. And uh, having seen her play, most times she comes through Dublin. There is a really loyal crowd. I yeah. think it's that the bass was never massive to begin with, yeah. compared to some of their contemporaries. Okay. You know, compared to the the Pearl Jams or the, you know, uh, the Screaming Trees or the Nirvanas or any of those. You know, but it's, is that a, is that to do with the gender? Is that to do with all the boys who are all who are following Pearl Jam and following? Yeah. I mean, Pearl Jam, are you, I mean, this. I know this isn't true, but does completely true. But does it break down like this that some group, the groups who survived, were followed by boys and girls, and some of the groups you're talking about were followed by mostly girls? Yeah, I I think that's an interesting one. I'll I don't have know. to. Do, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I'll have to do a little pop quiz the next time I'm I'm at a gig like that. But but no, I do take your point. I do think, and again, you know, people's lives change, and I am probably much less likely to listen to the angry shouty punk that really moved me when I was sixteen. Yeah, um, but don't get rid of the record because no, the time the time no, will come. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Latigra, yeah, mm-hmm. get off the internet. off the internet from La Tigra choice of uh, Jessica Trainer, who's with me in studio tonight love that that's great stuff isn't it oh it's brilliant yeah. it's brilliant so teenage wise we talked about the music but when did the writing in earnest start obviously you'd done stuff at school and presumably you could knock out an odd good composition and poem to put on the wall and so on yeah, but I, you're writing your own thing I always wanted to be a writer I always wanted to be a writer I think I wrote I wrote a, a kind of a novel about cats when I was about six or seven years old which my parents mortifyingly still have well, um, you know kind of decided I was going to write my own children's book well reading some of the novels that get published nowadays you might as well have a go <laughs> Absolutely. You could you set yeah. it in, set it in Roscommon? And you'd I, be might, flying, I yeah. might do, yeah. <laughs> uh, but unspoken, sec- unspoken sexual tensions between a group of friends in who Roscommon, are cats yeah. who happen to be cats. In Roscommon, um, yeah, yeah. Or in somewhere Roscommon, like Roscommon. somewhere. But yeah. um, but no, I I was always very very keen on it, and I always loved poetry. And I mean, there's one story that I tell, um, which is kind of funny, but is the truth, um, which is because we we were kind of a family of of singers, um, and my mum had uh, has a number of sisters and a lot of them sang and my mum sang so I would always get wheeled out at family parties to sing an adorable version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow and I hated it yeah. and I loved singing in the choir because that felt safe but I hated singing on my own and it was nerve wracking and I really I, I couldn't stand it so I remember for my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary I said I'm not singing a song but I'm going to write a poem yeah. 
and we had been uh, doing... Uh, and what age were you then? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I was probably about eight. Wow. Eight or nine. And we had been doing um, The Road Not Taken mm-hmm. and The Listeners by Walter Delamere. So I wrote this intensely miserable piece about a man coming back home uh, to the home that he grew up in, uh, which has been abandoned for a very long time and dropping his suitcase on the dusty floor and the sunshine coming in through the windows and everyone's dead, basically. And he's, he's there on his own. And I got up and read it at the party and nobody ever asked me to perform anything ever again oh, after God. that. So... <laughs> So it was poetry as safety blanket. Know your you know? audience, though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, no, my, my actually, my granny loved it and she kept it for years afterwards. But the, that was kind of my first attempt to write something that was an unrhymed yeah. poem. You know, it's something yeah. that kind of emulated the, the kind of the serious poetry that they're starting to filter in to the curriculum in primary school at primary school level. And when you went to the big school, um, what sort of poetry anthology, if there was one, were you introduced to? We had a book, I think it was called Chrysalis. So I didn't have that same experience that right. everybody had with that. Was it Soundings? The... So there was one called Soundings and then yeah. the one that we did was called Touchstones. OK, yeah. No, and we... it was good too because it was Ted Hughes and it was Heaney and it was, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, no, was, we had it some, was the canon, you know. We had some great stuff. I mean, I loved John Donne. Yeah. Um, I just was fascinated as a kid. by well in secondary te- yeah, school teenager, you know yeah. kind of coming into I think we did some John Donne for the I can't remember whether it was junior cert or leaving cert or both I think it might have been both but I just loved the notion of this kind of allegorical language mm-hmm. where you knew it was like a secret code there was something going on on the surface which sounded amazing but everything had its specific web of meanings mm-hmm. um, and it was like learning an entirely new language and that really fascinated me and something about that kind of conceptual yeah. nature of poetry has always stuck with me um, whether it's in the work my own work I'm not sure but I've always admired that kind of cleverness I Because it, I, I'd imagine uh, people <laughs> who devise a curriculum for for school kids will be always looking for, I don't know, plain language or street language or something like that. And yet you're responding to something written a long, long time ago by kind of, kind of a strange man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, it was it was certainly there. And I also suppose it was mirrored in the Shakespeare that we were doing in a way, yeah. you know, and the work we were having to do to understand that. Um, but then we also did Elizabeth Bishop, Sylvia Plath. They were two that really stood Very out good. for me. And neither of those are easy poets, you know. Um, and, and we had a really, really good teacher who just went into it in great depth. You know, yeah. there was a lot of work done on on meaning. And I think as well, you know, I think that can be, it can kind of shut the idea of the poem down sometimes. But if you're the kind of person who enjoys that kind of meticulous looking at each little I suppose, building block of the language. Mm. I really loved that, you know. And what about this idea, though, that sometimes where school can go wrong with poetry is a poem is always presented as a puzzle that you have to solve. Yes. And it's not necessarily that, you know. Yes. I don't know what it means. Well, OK, <laughs> yeah. that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the problem comes if somebody says, my take on the poem is this, and if somebody then comes and says, it's no, not that's that. not what yeah. it is. And I think that does happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, you know, where I really responded well to the John Donne and the Elizabeth Bishop and the Sylvia Plath, I don't think we did any contemporary poets who are out living, working. Right. I think that's changed a little bit. I mean, I see it among my peers the odd time. Somebody says, oh, my poem's on the junior circuit. Yes. Like, the poets are delighted by that. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the children respond well to that work as well mm. um, because it, it demystifies the entire thing. I mean, if you're only learning from people who are dead. Of course. It, it sends a certain message 
Yeah, I know when my kids were doing uh, Paul Durkin and yes, well, yeah. well Heaney obviously, but but other people who were absolutely around the and, place. and people who are likely to be able to come to your school maybe. Yeah, you know. Whereas I mean, uh, you know, Paul Durkin and, and Heaney, wonderful, but very hard to get them to come to, you know, St Louis National School yeah. in in, in Bath Mines. But or, even the fact they're writing about a place that you know, or you know, they're writing about your own street or your own home or yeah. your own hometown or whatever. Um, but in terms of your own writing. Um, it's a, it's a it's a curious thing though. With teachers, a teacher will ask you to write something, and and if you can write it all, inevitably you can turn something out. Do you know that's a strange thing? You know, I want you to write an essay about the following, or write a poem about the following, and you you do it, mm. which is kind of contrary to the whole notion of what creativity is about. You know, you're supposed to sit around and wait for inspiration. Well, and and I think this is it's such an interesting. That's a really interesting thing to say, I think, because uh, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is the notion of creativity and how we apply it to various different things. And what is creativity? It's problem solving. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, with a poem, I want to communicate this. How do I get there through language? And that's a problem to be solved in a way. Um, And I think that often we we put creativity in this box as something mysterious. We wait for the visit of the muse. Whereas if I'm wording a tricky email, I have to be as clever and as creative as I do in writing a poem a lot of the time. And again, I'm just so keen on the demystification of all of this because I think the feeling that you get when you write a poem is something akin to the mystic, you know. You do feel like you are bringing together various different forces and ideas in a way that you may not completely understand. But at the same time, as I've gone on as a writer and and, and two collections in now, I I know when my mind is at its most fertile to receive ideas and I know what kind of building blocks, various different juxtapositions and contrasts I'm going to create. Well, let's, let's talk about that in some more detail after this next track because uh, that's, that's big stuff you're getting into yeah. now. Very early in the night. <laughs> it's early in the night for that, but we'll do it. We, well, I'll follow you. Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're still a fan? You know, I think Billy Corrigan has written some absolutely wonderful songs. Um, I wish he'd stop now. <laughs> <laughs> But but I think that these these tracks were just perfect, kind of. Uh, well, surprise, surprise! We have Billy Corgan right here in studio. Oh no. <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins uh, tonight, tonight. Uh, the choice of uh, Jessica Trainer, who's with me in studio tonight. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more music from, uh, from Jessica. Don't go away. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. My guest tonight, Jessica Trainer. She's picking all the music tonight. And this is PJ Harvey. P. 
DJ Harvey there and dress. Uh, Jessica Trainer is with me in studio tonight picking all the tunes. Jessica's a writer, poet, uh, dramaturg, and we'll talk about that shortly too, and creative writing teacher. And just before the break, Jessica, we were you were just getting into the whole idea of creativity and uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it's the muse uh, coming in the window or it's... Uh, sitting down and getting on with yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's, I, I really think it's sitting down and getting on with it and without that, the muse doesn't appear. But I think the muse is an internal thing yeah. and the muse is that kind of magic that happens when you juxtapose and contrast ideas and language in a way that surprises you and that helps you get at something that's your kind of, I suppose your own inner truth and your inner message that all of us are struggling to articulate day to day in the world, whether it's, you know, trying to, trying to uh, buy a cup of coffee or communicate with somebody who's angry with you. You know, uh, language is this massive flawed system that we're all trying to negotiate throughout our lives. And and if there are moments when we can knit it together into something beautiful, then wonderful. But, you know, the onus is on all of us as individuals to make it happen. And I've come across so many young writers who have become disappointed because either everybody else makes it look very easy or they're waiting for the perfect atmosphere or they're waiting for the perfect job to come along to allow them 12 hours a day to write, you know. And like none of these things exist, but also that's okay, you know. And you can be... a somebody who who works full time um in a in a clothes shop or you know behind a desk answering emails and is also a writer um but you kind of the only person who's owed anything you owe it to yourself you know to make the time for that kind of thing to happen and in your case what what prompts you to write poetry say concentrate on the poetry for now what what prompts you to write that as opposed to dealing with the world and your inner truth and all the rest of it in in some other way it's funny, I think I've always been kind of under the spell of what poetry can do and, and how it can, I suppose, communicate those deeper truths in, in, in such small amounts of language. Um, and also, for me, poetry is hugely about trying to figure out the world. I mean, I think my subconscious is working away all the time trying to figure out on a kind of a, a basic level what's going on, you know, whether it's in the news or in my personal life or in my work life. Um, I think all of us have this kind of subconscious process going on um, and sometimes that will throw you insights and sometimes those insights will be something to build a poem around and whether it's maybe thinking of an image or a line that comes to you like a snatch of music almost, uh, putting it down somewhere and seeing what grows around it. Um, But that process has always been immensely pleasurable for me. Mm. I've enjoyed it. So it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, when it happens. Yeah. Of course, when it's not happening, it could be a, a torment and a torture. Yeah. Which you could do without because you're busy with other things. Absolutely. And I, I, I really do try to, you know, people talk again, I think um, talk about writer's block is almost as damaging as talk about the muse mm. uh, because it's it's personifying these two things, this negative external thing and this positive external thing mm. and pitting them against you, the helpless individual. The writer's block and the muse both live inside you. Mm. And uh, the writer's block is your phone Mm. Uh, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's your shopping list, it's your electricity bill, it's all of the various different things that can eat up a huge amount of your life and, and your, your mental space without you realising it. Um, and I just kind of made a little bargain with myself, probably well before the first book came out, that if I found myself feeling that stress and that anxiety, that I would make some time to allow myself to be kind of open to the world around me. And for me, actually, a lot of that is listening to music, whether it's, OK, I've got a long bus journey. I'm not going to take out the laptop 
Everybody can wait. Mm. I'm going to put on my headphones and look out the window and daydream. And often that's when poetry will come to me um, or even the idea for a poem. Um, you know, earlier on, I was in a cafe ordering a coffee and uh, the waitress saw I had my laptop there and she said, oh, the password is cauliflower with a capital C. And I kind of sat there thinking, cauliflower, what an interesting word. You know, cauliflower, does that come from call, like a child's call? Mm. And I immediately sent myself a little email saying, cauliflower, look up etymology. Um, and when you see the baby poem about cauliflower, <laughs> you'll know where it's come from. But if I, if I didn't make a conscious decision to be receptive to all those little digressions, yeah. even to the extent of just putting them in a little note to self on the phone. And if you don't put them in a note... Are they gone? Oh, I think they're gone. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think they are. I think it's really important. Um, and sometimes you look back over them and you go, what the hell was I thinking about? Cauliflower? Mm. What? What is that? Mm -hmm. um, or nothing comes of it. But if you don't try and catch them. Well, it's been said before that a lot, a lot of what, what poets do in particular is they're, they're basically just people who pay attention. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Notice what's going on. Absolutely, but you have to allow yourself to notice. Yeah, and I think we are all paying attention, but we are filtering it out uh, a lot of information that comes to us as unnecessary. Yeah, and I, you know, when I say this, when I'm teaching creative writing, I kind of give a, a similar spiel to the one we've been discussing because I, I, I do believe it to be true. But, um, you know, if you if you do try and open yourself to that experience and, and, and pay more attention, you won't immediately come up with something. But much like, you know, if you go to the gym three times a week or if you practice playing the piano, you will see improvements. Yeah. It just don't, it won't happen overnight. Well, say I was in your class now and I said to you, um, yeah, that's, that's all fine. But, you know, Australia's in flames and the world's a mess and, you know, our leaders are all, you know, I mean, the world's just tanked. Mm -hmm. And you're writing about cauliflowers. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I know. Uh, yeah. What 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 use is what use is, is writing poetry in the face of you know the real stuff? Yeah. Do you know, yeah. and whether it's Wordsworth writing about daffodils or whatever it is, you know, yeah. I mean, what really, what 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 good is it going to do anybody but you, but yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think as readers of poetry, we have to admit that it does us good and it is a solace for us mm -hmm. or it is something we turn to in terms of trying to work out these problems, partly because I think it's good for us as human beings to aim for something better. Mm -hmm. And even if that only affects us on a psychological level, um, and even if my uh, baby poem called Cauliflower is uh, about my, my, me and my daughter, um, even if that only lifts the spirits of another person who's had a similar experience, mm. um, you know, I think that's enough. Yeah. You know, it's not enough full stop. Our duty is 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 over. But, you know, it, the world is a dark place and and you can't let it get to you because if you let it get to you, then you'll be paralysed. And even the tiny, small differences you are making will cease to cease to happen. And, think, and that uh, would be tragic, I think. I think Heaney said once that poetry was a, a stay against confusion. Absolutely. You know, it is that, yeah. does steady, steady things. Yeah. Which is why, I mean, I've, I've said this to people so many times, they're fed up hearing me say it, but, it, you know, that's why people read poems at weddings and at funerals and things like that. You know, it's, it's the only way of, it's the only way of expressing what needs, needs to be expressed. Yeah, absolutely. You can't do it yourself, but some other person was able to do it, so yeah, there you yeah. go. Anyway, lyrics I wanted to ask you about, now haven't yet, we just played PJ Harvey. Mm. 
you would pay close attention, I'd say, to what she says. I yes, I do, and I actually one of the reasons I love that song is the kind of the the interesting, sophisticated gender politics of it. Yeah. You know, this notion of putting on a dress and what that means and who has the power there. Is it you know, woman as as recipient of the male gaze or woman as arbiter of their own sexuality? Um, and it reminds me of that um, Kim Adonisio poem, "What Women Want." You know about the red dress, um, and yeah, lyrics are so important. That's a poem for does me. the rounds on social media quite. A bit. It does, it yeah. does, yeah, absolutely. And that's again what we're saying. I mean, she never, she wouldn't have thought when she wrote that poem that people would be paying who don't never read poetry would be paying close attention to that. Exactly, yeah, and it's it's something it's anything that gets towards that kind of shared lived experience and those little puzzles in our lives and those little contradictions like the power of a red dress. You know, is it power? Whose power is it? And um, that's always been really important to me in terms of in terms of lyrics. I want something that challenges me uh, you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of lyrics and I would have spent a lot of time kind of reading them and writing them out when I was uh, growing and, up. And do you think you know when I think of Heaney's generation they weren't affected certainly Seamus wasn't by popular culture at all you know I mean he would have been aware of Paul Simon and Bob Dylan and so on <laughs> but, but wasn't really you know from that no, where no. someone like Muldoon clearly is yes. and anybody, anybody younger do you, do you think that the, 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 the poets nowadays, from Muldoon's age on, uh, would have been quite influenced by pop music in particular and, and lyrics of, the you know, Dylan and the obvious people, Leonard Cohen, so... Yeah, I think so. I think when they allow themselves to be or when they find ways of kind of marrying that influence with their own originality, you know... Um, and I think especially the younger generation, I mean, the poets were kind of coming after me, the poets are in their, their mid-twenties now. It's yeah. all about internet culture mm-hmm. and reference. And that's really interesting as well, yeah. because the internet is a fascinating collage of different influences. And what, um, about, what about those of us, you know, who would have been aware of hip-hop growing up and rap and all the rest of it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a huge influence on the spoken word scene, mm. you know, and again, kind of... Uh, Growing up as somebody who was listening to music in the in the late nineties, early two thousands, I would have listened to a lot of hip hop as well and really enjoyed that. Um, you know, and you definitely see those influences coming through in a lot of spoken word poetry, which has that kind of immediacy and and the ability to react to contemporary situations that that other lyric poetry or page poetry, I suppose, might not have. But I I think that poetry is flexible enough to contain all of those multitudes. Um, you know, yeah, I, I get asked a lot what I think of performance poetry. Oh yes, you know, yeah, yeah. And while a lot of it wouldn't be my bag, it's still good. It is still good, and I mean, I find it like I, I call it. I call it a gateway drug. Yeah. You know, um, and especially the same, probably more so with Instagram poetry. Um, you know, with uh, uh, these these poets who are kind of little picture and kind of what's more like an inspirational quote but you know it's like come for the Instagram poetry and then stay for the people who've been working at it for years but even if one person then you know goes on to the harder stuff (laughs) that's surely a good thing The Great Spelunker uh, is your next Mm. choice Masters of Reality Mm Mm-hmm didn't yeah. see that coming. Yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of, um, I was a kind of a, a teenage music nerd, as as you probably know from my kind of rifling through various different uh, charity shop music bins and things like that. And um, there was this kind of scene uh, from the mid to late 90s in, in America, this desert rock stoner rock scene who were kind of the inheritors of grunge and, and kind of turned into bands like Queens of the Stone Age yeah. who would be kind of a big, big noise in alternative rock at the moment and for the past decade. Um, but this uh, band, Masters of Reality, obviously named after the Sabbath album, um, th- this producer, Chris Goss, would have worked with 
a huge number of these kind of mid-90s grunge bands and afterwards and really kind of again was one of these underappreciated people who created this entire scene and a sound but you know this song in particular is very kind of Pink Floyd-esque it has this kind of uh, dreamy groovy sound to it which I really enjoy Um, but yeah I don't know if anybody else in Dublin or Ireland has ever really listened to them Well they will now Masters of Reality there, uh, the choice of Jessica Trainer, who's uh, with me in studio tonight, picking all the music. Your first book, uh, Jessica, with Daedalus Press, was called uh, Liffy Swim. Very fine book, if I may say so. And there has since, and there's since been another one, uh, The Quick. What was the what was the gap between the two of them? Apart um, from haircuts, I know. Yeah, apart from haircuts, yeah. um, uh, one of my many wigs that I'm changing all the time. But uh, no, it was about four years. Yeah, so four years worth of hair growth in between the first and the second. Now, when you did the first one, um, again, you think of bands and their first album mm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the best thing they ever did. And sometimes it's like, that's ah, all right, it'll, it, but it's a step on, you know, they're off and running now. You know? Yes. How, yeah. did you, how did you kind of feel about it? Well, how do you feel about it now? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, I, I'm, I'm still delighted with it and proud of it, but I remember Pat Boren, my editor, saying to me, you know, beware of throwing the kitchen sink at the book, yeah. which is something that young poets tend oh, to yeah. do, you know. And because with your first book, you're always gathering up about 10 or 15 years of experience. Yeah. With the second book, you're, you're having to kind of react quicker what's happened in the um, last six months exactly yeah. exactly so so generally speaking things become th- more thematically coherent hopefully as the books progress yeah, yeah. Um, so you know I look back on it and I think I was still probably finding my you know the, my voice doing bunny ears here you know what does voice mean um, but I was still kind of identifying my preoccupations um, there are a lot of poems I'm really proud of in it and that I look back and I go God I don't know how I wrote that which I think is always the mark of a poem that maybe not a great poem but a poem that the writer is still in love with a bit where you kind of go I'm not sure exactly where that one came yeah, but from You've already talked about your, your suspicions about the existence of the muse and so on yeah, and so forth yeah. When you are in that situation where you go what was I thinking of? What? Well then what was happening then? I mean it can't it, it, there must be something mystical happening Well I think that for me it's like I always think of it like the poetry is kind of like the cross or a crossword you know, there is a logic to it, but it's an intensely lateral logic. Right. You know, it might not be moving forward or backwards. It might be moving sideways and diagonally. Mm-hmm. So your your kind of free associations in your mind are happening, are sparking off in, at a number of different levels and directions. And you're wrestling that into a shape right. for the reader. Um, so it's it's definitely a kind of a, a, a familiar thought process to a certain degree um, but it's harder to explain I think. But when you look at a poem and you go I don't remember writing that and I don't even know what I was thinking or where that came from or anything. I'll probably have more of a sense I'll always have a sense of the intention right. you know of, of what I was trying to convey but that intention could just be a feeling an atmosphere um, and and the way that I've then illustrated that feels quite um, that's the part of it that I think well that's where the real inspiration was you know that I chose this particular fable like mm. situation or narrative in order to communicate that attention that's the kind of the interesting bit that I sometimes go oh, I don't uh, know how I came up with that And how did you find then when you 
produced the, the books and you're out on the road and you're reading them to small groups of people. <laughs> Well, you know what? I've really... I, sometimes large groups of people. Some, sometimes. Yeah. Some, sometimes. Um, I, with the first book, I would have been a much more nervous reader. Um, and then I went to lots of festivals and I watched lots of other people. And I watched especially lots of women poets being really apologetic about their work. Yeah. And I thought, come on, Jess, you have a theatre background. You know better than this. If you go out and apologise, people yeah. will think you've something to be sorry for. Yeah. You know, and it's really basic psychology. But if you go out there and just say this is happening now and you're going to enjoy it people will people will think they've had a great time so the, the poems will continue exactly. until we're all improved exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah so i've i've enjoyed kind of finding a slightly more performative voice um in the second book and a lot of that came from the kind of the poems that i would read from the first book that went down very well mm-hmm. where i gave a little bit more of a performance now i would never call myself a performance poet but i think i've gotten more comfortable in my own voice yeah. you know in the way that people get more comfortable in their own skin um, and I think that that has helped with the work. I think it help, it's helped me feel more confident in the work that I'm writing and also in my delivery of it. And that means I'm having more fun, so hopefully the audience is too. And in terms of your, your sense of yourself as a writer, when you're, when you're a poet, you know, basically what happens is, you know, the, the book comes out and if you're lucky, some people will, will buy it and you'll, you'll read at some events and, and, and that kind of thing. But it's not go- you're not going to have the same experience that other writers that you'll find all over Twitter are having. Mm-hmm. People who write prose or write nonfiction. People who are successful in, in, where it's in, in, a, in an arena where it's actually possible to be successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, are you happy in that swim of being in, in poetry as opposed to people you would know who are, you know by the looks of things are doing extremely well I'm not sure who you're talking about John is there anyone doing better than me at the moment <laughs> but I'm talking, well you know novelists no, know. novelists and so on again, yes. oh, that's the hot new thing from Ireland and blah, yeah, you know, short story yeah. writers from Roscommon and all there's yeah, so many of them exactly. now and, and if you read their Twitter accounts you would think that they were all really living on the hog now but do you know what John I get people saying the same thing to me yeah. you know God you're doing so well and then I'm just out there kind of going you have to keep spreading the word about the work and, and it does make us all feel that everybody else is doing so much better but yeah. I think that's more to do with the, the kind of the echo, echo chamber of social yeah, media but poetry but is quieter though isn't it it it's is a quieter, quieter world and I have to say that does suit me you know I never thought that I was going to be reading to you know the audience at, at Carnegie Hall yeah. you know it was never going to be that kind of career um, but I think that kind of suits me yeah. you know yeah. Yeah, yeah I enjoy it I think it's a healthier swim to be in yes although I'm sure I'm sure the poetry world can have its uh, I'm sure there's Intrigue and all the rest oh, of it going on. Absolutely, there's a wonderful um, dynamic, which is an actual. It's an actual kind of recognised dynamic called. I think it's called sales law, which was initially coined. The term's coined for academia, and the the, the dynamic of sales law is that uh, the smaller the, the the lower the stakes, the more angry and involved people get. Oh, yeah, and that is definitely the case in the poetry world. Sometimes people a very small piece of the pie to be passed around in terms of arts funding and things like that in the poetry world but boy do people fight for it tooth but and I, nail. I, I think it's probably I think a lot of writing contemporary writing, uh, prose writing novels and so on you, can, you know that those writers have been affected by the possibility that it could be very successful for them mm. because somebody else they know has been successful last year or something like that yeah. they? and I think it's kind of changed the way people write they're writing with it with the possibility of huge success hanging over them 
Yes. Whereas if you're writing poetry, that's not going to happen. No, it's so not. So I think you've got a clearer run at what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is more about the notion, and it's a kind of an innocent notion in a way, that you are showing something deeply personal yeah. and sharing that with an audience, which which is less the case. I mean, obviously, of course, every writer is, is completely part of the work that they make. But poetry, it is a more personal and direct But it's definitely not a career move. No, it certainly no. isn't. Whereas, no. you know, any, any young person who writes a novel nowadays, it is potentially a career move. Potentially, although, you know, I think I think in a lot of those cases, uh, the, the sales are not quite what no, everyone would not. hope, you know, and I think it's probably harder than people make it look. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the book you produced with Stephen Ray, uh, tell me a bit about that, where that came from. So this came from, um, I suppose I worked in the Abbey for about 10 years, so I would have known Stephen a bit from my time working in the literary department there. Um, and he knew I was a poet. Uh, he knew I had written some poems that responded to the situation of, of, of direct provision. Um, and in 2017, he asked me to be part of this field day right to have rights lecture series um, that Seamus Dean and a few others were speaking at and um, Judge Brian McMahon. Um, and there were a number of people as well, different artists who were in direct provision who had come to contribute to the lectures as well. Well, and I mean, it was such a positive experience um, that we really wanted to see what we could do to keep the conversation going. Uh, so myself and Stephen and um, Billy Hall, uh, who's out at UCD, kind of tried to figure out what we could do by way of an arts anthology. You know, and it comes back to the question of what does art change? Mm -hmm. You know, are we going to are we going to change hearts and minds here with this? What are we going to do? Um, so we really thought we might try and focus in on creating a kind of an experience or the potential for an experience for people in direct provision that they might not get otherwise, uh, which was to ask them to contribute work if they'd like to the anthology on no set theme. We didn't ask them to talk about mm. why they had come to Ireland or what their experience was in direct provision. Now, most of them chose to kind of respond in, in either broadly and under either of those two categories. But, um, you know, we, we thought, OK, we'll get these contributions in and then we'll say to the, the people, would you like to be paired with an Irish writer? Uh, for a little bit of mentorship uh, to develop a piece in tandem with each other and then we'll publish you side by side and then in the anthology and we also had got funding so everyone would be paid for this process um, so lots of people kind of took that up and what we were trying to do I suppose was to create a, a relationship outside of the direct provision system for people who are based here in these incredibly geographically isolated centres in many cases um, who are kind of stuck there waiting for their applications to go through for years in some cases um, to allow them to kind of connect a little bit with people mm. in Irish society and to allow people in Irish society to connect with them um, for this cultural exchange that we kind of hoped would outlast the book itself. You know, anthologies are ephemeral things, they come and go. Um, and we also then, we, we we got lots of submissions in after the, the deadline had closed. So in those cases, we asked an Irish artist to respond to those pieces. Um, so there's lots of pairings in the book um, and lots of friendships that have continued Yeah, it seems to have been, it got a lot of coverage. The book's been reprinted now a couple Yes, time, yeah, yeah, we've gone to reprint um, with lots of events lined up between now and the summertime um, at, at which various contributors will be reading. Um, so we're going to have one at the Ennis Book Club Festival. Uh, yeah. There's one in Refugee Week in Cork uh, the first week in February um, and there's a lot of other ones in the works as and well. And it's published by Stinging Fly, isn't um, it? It's actually not. No, we published it ourselves. Um, 
we wanted to respond very quickly and as you know yourself most publishers will be kind of saying oh, we'd love to do this project but it'll be 2020, 2021 by the time we can fit it into our uh, publishing schedule. So um, I just got advice from various different people including The Stinging Fly who, who are oh, publishing right. books and we, we published it ourselves with our own funding but The Stinging Fly were generous enough to help us with the online distribution right. because we were all things to all men and women. We were, you know, the editors, we were the, uh, uh, the, 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 the account holders we were the people who were typesetting and, and publishing the book and distributing it then. So, And it's called Correspondences. Correspondences. And uh, it's got a great cover on it as well. If yeah, can. yeah, it's a wonderful cover. And um, we, we, we had so many generous people involved, including Fintan Wall, a graphic designer who I've worked with a couple of times um, through my work in Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum for the past couple of years. Um, but he feels very passionately about the subject as well. So he so did the in cover all, In us. all good bookshops, Jessica. In all good bookshops, yeah. Okay, so your next choice. Let's get a few more of these in. Agnes O'Bell. Yes, Old yeah. spooky songs. Spooky yes, song. I love uh, the teenage goth in me. Still, still alive and kicking. And this is called uh, Familiar. Agnes Obel there and familiar the choice of uh, Jessica Trainer who's with me in studio tonight we've been talking a lot tonight about Jessica's work as a poet but also on your CV you're a dramaturg now I think I've met a dramaturg before oh. and I asked the same question what's a dramaturg? Yeah I think the easiest way to, to put it is you're a script editor Yeah. so you're for working the, for the theatre yes for the theatre um, and you're working with playwrights who are developing their plays um, much in the same way that a poetry editor or a novel editor would work um, generally speaking with plays you're going to be doing a few kind of workshops where you'll bring a director some actors in um, and they'll kind of play around with the piece uh, so it's a it's, I suppose it's kind of a, a slightly more high impact role than the very kind of intimate role between a uh, a prose editor and a prose writer. And at what stages of the process are you present? Are you at work? Um, well, I would have, when I was in the Abbey commissioning plays, I would have read every draft of the play as it came in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think myself and the playwright would kind of mutually agree when was the time to workshop it. Um, and then, you know, there might be instances where you'd say this needs a one day sit down workshop, very quiet, uh, or it needs a week long workshop where it's up on its feet and we're trying out different things and we're, you know, we're, we're looking at different aspects of the of the text and its presentation. Um, so that's an interesting so role. So it's very, very heavily involved in the production. Absolutely, yeah. yeah See, yeah. I, I used to think it was kind of like, you were like a like the lawyer, that they kind of sent you the script at the end and you went, just ticked things and yeah. question marks here and there. No, but you're, no it's you're much kind more kind of yeah, yeah. It's more like it's more like carving out a pumpkin and taking yeah. out all of the seeds and yeah. things like that. It's a much it's a much messier, more involved process. But there's also the kind of the more traditional dramaturg role, which is also just around things like um, you know fact checking a play, you know looking at the various different historical contexts of something like Shakespeare, bringing in information about various different productions. Um, American dramaturgy can be quite focused on that, looking at the history of the productions of a piece in its various yeah. contexts. So there's that as well. And it's good somebody is, that can be somebody's job, you know, that it's it's, it's a time-consuming thing. Oh, it's good yeah. somebody else is doing that. Yeah, oh, yeah. and it was a fascinating, wonderful experience working with playwrights. What, what years were you there then? I'm thinking of the playwrights you would have worked with. So I was in the Abbey uh, from... 
2007 to 2017. Oh, um, well. So in various, I was literary manager for the last two years of that. Um, mm. Before that, I would have been kind of in, in slightly lesser roles of support, uh, but would have done a lot of work directly with playwrights as well. Mostly have been in all of the workshops, um, offering my opinions. Um, but for the last two years, it, I was kind of there at every single stage. Well, would you worked with Tom Murphy, for instance? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I used to, I, I was, I, I, I had known Tom actually since I was very young um, because uh, Jane Brennan, his partner's mother, Daphne, lived on the same road we lived on in oh, Lascar. Right. Yeah. Um, and then also when my parents split up, we almost, me and my mum, bought the bottom part of Tom Murphy's house oh, in right. that Yeah, I know, I know that house. You know yeah. it, yeah. So we almost bought the, the, the basement um, yeah. and we, we didn't. We didn't then in the end. We went to, to Churchtown instead. But I've, I've kind of known him since I was very young. But what happens, for instance, if it's a, a Tom Murphy play and it's not a new play? Is there a role for you in that? I mean, um, the play has already been done. It's, 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 it's uh, flawless. Well, flawless, yeah. Yes. Is anything ever flawless? Yeah. Um, the director might disagree with that, you yeah. know. So often it would depend on the kind of production it was. Um, with a piece of work that's existing, if the director wants to take a different approach and wants to look at it and maybe cut things and if the writer is very happy with that, then yeah, there, there would have been a role for me there. Um, but a lot of the time the writer, and rightly so, would be quite protective of, of the text, you know, and yeah. not want any changes to be made. So, you know, but it could... Any any different kind of situation could play out depending on the kind of production, the writer, the director, all of those different things. But Brian, I would have I would have worked Brian Freel? With Brian, I would have done less dramaturgical work. I'm trying to think if we did anything. If I we wouldn't did have fancied ringing up Brian and saying we need we need to move Act Two and shift it to. <laughs> no, no, and I mean you looked at I mean the, the the one thing that I worked on quite a lot with Tom Murphy, for example, was the Last Days of a Reluctant Tyrant. That was a great, which was a great, I, I great big epic piece. Um, but that was more about kind of aiding him with his own process, which was very unique. Mm. So he wrote everything by hand. And what he would do is he would rewrite scenes from memory. If something wasn't working, he'd take it away and he'd kind of rewrite the scene from memory. And generally what happened was the good stuff stuck and the unnecessary stuff fell out. Right. And that was his process. And I, you know, I, I would give him my opinions, but there were some playwrights who really wanted you in there from the outset and other playwrights who would come to you and, you know, ask you whether things were working and then you could say well I'm just going to venture that perhaps this scene you know uh, is not quite working in this position but you had to build those relationships with care oh Oh, I bet I bet it's a tricky thing but it's necessary yeah yeah and I've just said it's necessary but do all theatres have a dramaturg no not all of them have the luxury you know I mean there are there are a number of theatre companies in Ireland who have dramaturgical positions and you know Druid and Rough Magic um, have traditionally had them uh, Fish Amble obviously has Gavin Costick um, and then Tinderbox in the North. I don't think they have their dramaturg anymore. Um, so often, in my case, I was the literary manager, which meant that I, yes, I did the dramaturgical work, but I also commissioned the plays. I also licensed plays. Were you in the Abbey when Sam Shepherd was here? Yes, yeah, yeah. I would have I would have been there uh, for Kicking a Dead Horse yeah. and Ages of the Moon as well. Sam sitting up, sitting up the back laughing. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly, and yeah. going out for sessions in the in the cobblestone yeah. afterwards with oh, all of the trad musicians. Oh, we had great fun. And me bent his ear about Bob Dylan all the time. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't mind. No, he didn't. <laughs> Bless him. Um, now, um, uh, more music. Chelsea, Mark Lanigan, you really want to? Hear. I'd love I to know. get Mark in. Yeah. All right, you're a huge fan of Mark. I Lanigan. am, and you're not wrong. You're quite right. He's one of the best, I think. Here comes resurrection song. 
Okay. Jessica Trainer with me in studio. You're a huge Mark Lanigan fan, actually. I am a really yeah. big Mark Lanigan fan. We, myself, and my husband tend to try and go and see him whenever he comes through town, which is about every year and a half. Yeah. And I, it's just been a, a couple of markers in my life. And we, we lived in Edinburgh for a little while, and we had absolutely no money. And around this is around 2011. Um, and the one thing we did while we were there for the nine months or so was we went to Glasgow to see Mark Lanigan, <laughs> um, and we've seen him now twice or three times since then and I, I remember that one of the, the first gig I went to and I love going to gigs I go to them as often as I can um, after I gave birth I think in September was Mark Lanigan in December of 2017 and it was just kind of a nice returning to you know my own life as well as the life of mother and child yes I can still go to gigs Never regret going to a gig No never never Even a bad one there's something good happens Oh I just again just really good for the soul I yeah. love it Now um I was going to ask you about lyrics and writing lyrics yourself, but you you are at work on a libretto, are you? I I am, yeah. Really interesting project. Am I supposed to know that? Sorry, you look you, the look on your face was like, oh, can I talk about? Oh this? yeah, no, of course I can, absolutely. It's um, it's a uh, it's a commission from Music for Galway and uh, Galway Twenty Twenty to write a libretto for a community opera that's going to happen in St Nicholas's Church in the heart of Galway, uh, in June of this year now 2020 and uh, INO Irish National Opera are uh, co-producing it and I'm working with a choral composer called Elaine Agnew yeah. whose music I would have known from singing in choirs uh, myself and who I worked with on a lovely song cycle uh, project that was commissioned by Poetry Ireland and Chamber Choir Ireland last year. So this project came up incredibly ambitious. They said, will you write a libretto for us? And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I have no idea how to write a libretto. But as a freelance writer, I had to say, yes, of course. Of course. I know of how course. To write and, you know, I will try it. And if if two weeks down the line, I realise I really can't, I will let them. <laughs> well, you know, you're actually, you're not the let first person, the first guest I've had here. Uh, they've been musicians mostly, but they've said things from from a pop music, rock music background. And they said, oh, yeah, I've been asked to write an opera, work on an opera. And I've said to them, what do you know about opera? And they say nothing. Yeah, but, yeah. But so when you write a libretto, maybe it's different in every context, but I can't imagine you can just send them loads of words and you go off, you go, you work with that. You must collaborate closely, do you? Well, I, you know, in in a way, I suppose I was, I, I had confidence that I had from my own theatrical background and my own work with playwrights and my own work, previous work with Elaine and then having seen a lot of opera over the course of my working life, um, I kind of knew... I had a sense of what I was aiming for. Yeah. Um, I also had a sense of, you know, I had a chorus of a certain number of people. I had a certain number of solo singers and then there was a bigger community chorus. So all of these things were putting, uh, it was like putting little uh, parameters in that I thought, OK, these are the things I can work within. Okay. Um, I would love to know more about opera. I would have loved to have known more about music going into it. But, um, but I knew because Elaine is the composer and she's worked with my poetry before I knew that she would be able that 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 what I write would suit her style yeah. of composition and yeah. um, so I wrote 
the first draft of it and sent it off and expected there to be a huge amount of back and forth. But they were actually very happy with what I'd done. So obviously it's developed since then. But I was expecting them to say, my goodness, this is not what we wanted at all. Um, but everybody's very and happy And you just said, fair it. enough, because they don't know what I'm doing. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I would have been very happy to kind of try yeah. other things. But, yeah. um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of steaming ahead. We had a lovely launch there Um back towards the end of last year in Galway where uh, our one of our wonderful opera singers sang a section of it that Elaine has composed. Um, that and must feel very, very strange. Strange and just wonderful. Really wonderful. So it's been one of the most exciting things I think that I've that I've done in my professional career. Um, and I'm play. glad I said yes. <laughs> yes. We're going to play your second last track here. Uh, Run the Jewels. Yes. Yeah. I, I love is, it, is it anything like what you're writing for uh, the opera? It is not. Oh. <laughs> I think that might have been the clean version, actually. Run the Jewels and Early the Very Chime. hard to find a clean version yeah. of most well, of their songs. I did try. Well, I think I think on Lyric FM, we we excel at finding the clean version. Yeah. Opera can be as, de- as violent debauched, and debauched yeah. as possible, but any other kind of music has to be censored. Run the Jewels, um, Early, the choice of uh, Jessica Trainer who's with me in studio. Now, uh, Jessica's uh, correspondence is a book she edited with Stephen Ray. Correspondence is, is available now in all good bookshops. It's all in a good cause too. Um, her own books, uh, the first one, The Liffey Swim, and then that was followed by The Quick, are on Daedalus Press. Mm-hmm. There'll be another one, I'm sure, coming along soon. We ish, hope so, we yeah. Hope. yeah. And, um, and uh, I just wanted to ask you one more question before we go, because a lot of people that listen to the show, you find, you find people who like to write themselves and try to write and so on. Where do you write and in what circumstances do you write? If you if you have a choice, sometimes you may be on the bus, I know, but where do you, how do you normally do it? I have to say, and, and I, this is against all the rules, but generally it's curled up on the sofa with my laptop on my lap, uh, really? with my husband sitting beside me watching sports or current affairs programmes or, you know, I might be half watching something and I'll be working away. I like to be in the middle of things. You really? Know? I do, yeah, yeah. Now, if I'm doing a, a long editing project, you know, if I'm getting a book together, I will try and get away to a writer's retreat. Um, we've just moved house and, and hopefully at some stage I will have a study space in that house, but I'll still, I can still see myself taking the laptop and a, coming back into the living room. You won't have a study space. You I won't. Ch- I won't children, have a toy, a toy room. Children will put a stop to that. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's interesting that you you can you, you can write in the middle. Yeah. yeah, I can understand you writing maybe in a in a in a noisy pub or something, but not yeah, not yeah. not in your own house. Well, you know, I just like the companionship. You know, I I I kind of I'm one of these kind of introvert extrovert people. Like I I like to be away from the the big crowds, but I like to be with my 
people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we just, I, I would either be reading or writing, Declan might be reading or writing. Uh, you know, Abigail is too young to be, you know, up past half seven yet. Right. Um, so maybe that'll change in the next couple of years. But I, I just, because all of us have so much full-time work to do, I would be very loath to give up even that sitting in the same space in the in the evening. And I'm just really good at kind of filtering out those distractions. And, and the television could be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Television could be on. Yeah, I can just ignore it. And do you, would you, uh, you mentioned Declan a couple of times there now, would you say, what do you think of this? I've just written this. What do I, you think I will that? sometimes, if I'm really up against it and I need to present something in public and nobody else has time, I will prevail upon him. Right. Um, and he's very good about that kind of thing. But, uh, but I, I try, I try not to too much. I try to choose the ones that I'm going to inflict on him and ask for an opinion. Because one of the first things you said about, you talked about being a writer, it's, it's an isolated scenario. Mm. It is mm. a, a, by its nature. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The isolation is, it's good and bad, isn't it really? I think so, yeah. I think most writers need a certain degree of isolation. You know, there's that kind of needing to recharge the batteries thing that goes on. Um, but I also think that being around other people is 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 where your inspiration comes from. You know, that's so important to find some sort of balance between the two. And that's why I don't think I could ever be a full-time poet. I think if the inspiration for a novel or something else long form ever comes along, the luxury of having, you know, eight hours a day to work on that sounds wonderful. But I that that wouldn't work for me poetry-wise, apart from, again, as I said, those intense periods of editing when you're working very clearly towards a deadline for a book. And what about with poetry um, strike rate? You know, there, there are a lot of novelists who seem to be able, if they put their mind to it, they sit down and write a novel. It's a version of another novel mm-hmm. or a version of one they've written themselves. But with poetry, I mean, would you write, you know, would, would one in every ten turn out to be a poem or would, would every other sec- every second one have some promise to it or what? You know, it's really hard. I, n- I never make those decisions until the book Mm. is happening and then I think it becomes very clear which are the successful and not successful ones. Mm. I mean, taking them out on and reading them in public is also a good thing mm-hmm. as long as you're not, you know, uh, doing the whole kind of Bob Dylan thing of making everybody listen to your, yeah. <laughs> the entirety or Leonard or um, Neil Young yeah. of making everyone listen to the recent stuff. Um, there is a balance there. But uh, but yeah, I think I, 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 I try not to make those decisions until I'm looking at gathering something into a coherent project and then there may be poems that are really good poems and oddly sometimes those are the poems that win competitions and I often find if you look at a collection of poetry and there's a competition winning poem in the middle of it it's often the one that sticks out like a sore thumb because it's a wonderful little kind of microcosm in and of itself but it doesn't fit anywhere else Um, it doesn't actually speak to any of the other poems in the book so that's a a weird challenge I think And you would rely heavily on the advice of editors and first readers and all the rest of it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, we're, I'm lucky enough with uh, with Pat. He's a great editor. You know, he has a really good eye on things and we can kind of talk back and forth about about things. But I will also send work to my peers, other poets who I really respect and I will prevail upon them because just to have a kind of a, a couple of different reactions, you know, and they may not all be right or they may not be right for you. But I think part of the, part of becoming a confident writer is filtering out the advice that may be well-meaning but actually is not speaking to your intentions as a writer Um, and then also accepting the advice that you want to reject because you're afraid that you don't know how to implement it. 
that's the real trick, living with the stuff that terrifies you when your own reaction as a maybe an intelligent or articulate person is to say, no, that's not a problem. And here are the seven reasons why. And as a dramaturg, I would see playwrights doing this a lot, especially the younger ones. They would kind of say, no, that's not a problem. And here are the seven reasons. And you would kind of say to yourself, I think you're just afraid you don't know how to fix the problem. But nobody's asking you to fix the problem right now. Yeah. We're just saying, let's say that it's a problem and we can live with it for a while and then see how that plays out, you know. So I try and take that advice myself, but I think that's the hardest advice for a writer to take is to kind of grasp the fear of the unknown, of the problems that you don't know how to fix immediately. Sounds like life. It is. Jessica, thank you so much for coming in. Really enjoyed your choices tonight. Your last choice is... uh, Avalanche, just tell me about this. Um, these are a really young new band. They're fantastic. Um, and this song, I think, is a really, really intelligent response to the, the Me Too movement. So, you know, feels apt at the moment. Avalanche, another sky. Jessica Trainer, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.